Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 3K, A Farm by the Hills. Town versus country. The sophisticated townsfolk with their broad horizons and their broad knowledge on one side versus the backwards hillbillies. Or, if you look at it from the other side, the hoity-toity superior city slickers versus the good old salt-of-the-earth simple country folk. It's a pattern of a thousand different tensions and conflicts, like uh, the American tension between blue state, east coast intellectuals and red state rednecks, or similar tensions in 20th century China, or the rise of Louis Napoleon, or the Abbasids, or the Germanizing of Imperial Rome, and so on and so on. A familiar pattern. Maybe dangerously familiar. Because when we come across a part of history that breaks from the pattern, we can sometimes still see the pattern where it doesn't exist. Our historian's eyes straining to make sense of what we see, to make it fit the overall pattern we're expecting. And we stop looking at what's really there. Okay, so what's all this moralising of an old historian about? Well, this week the moralising might just be helpful. Because in this episode, we're going back to northeast India. And there's a tension there, a tension that might easily be confused for that familiar tension between town and country. But it's nothing like that at all. The tension in ancient northeast India is between the people of the valley and the people of the hills. Now, if you've ever been to India, the division will be fairly intuitive and familiar. But if you haven't been, then it's going to be helpful to know this. People from northeast India, especially from the hill states there, often look a bit different to people from elsewhere in northern India. Other Indians tend to describe people from there as looking Chinese. I can never quite see the similarity myself. Anthropologists tend to describe people from the northeast as mongoloid. That's even harder to make sense of, actually. I mean, your average chap from the northeast looks about as much like a Mongolian as Johnny Depp. In any case, people from the northeast tend to look a bit different from other people from North India. And sometimes they get picked out for it by other Indians. You know, Chuck Day India is a film which has got some of that stuff. Or uh, you might get asked if you you know Kung Fu, if you're from that part of the world, that sort of thing. Come to think of it, asking someone if they know Kung Fu is pretty strange, strange thing to ask anyone, let alone a modern day Indian. Anyway, there's this tension there. And in ancient times, it was the same. But people in the valleys of northeast India looked more or less like your stereotypical image of a North Indian, probably. And the people in the hills, they looked different. And back then, there was an even greater divide between those two groups. The folk in the valley gave the hill folk a name, Kirata. We don't really know what Kirata means. There's a, a tree called the Kirata tree that grows up in the hills of the northeast. It produces a, a bitter leaf, which is used in medicine today. But whether the people were named after the tree or the tree was named after the people, it's hard to say. By the way, that name Kirata, that still sometimes appears in the modern day world. So, for example, there's a, a computer game called Far Cry 4. Far Cry 4 is set in this Himalayan mountain kingdom called Kirat. Well, Kirat is a real place. Kirat is the ancient name for an area in northeast India, which nowadays is called Tripura. 
Anyway, this episode, we're going to be spending time looking at the valley folk and the Kiratas in the hills around them. First, we're going to hear of, of the legends of their conflicts and their alliances. And then we're going to hear about their historical ties. But we're going to spend most of our time getting a sense of how that difference between them, that tension, affected day-to-day life. Getting a sense of the, the ground-level conflicts and alliances. In fact, I think we're going to take an imaginary walk from the valley up into the hills of ancient northeast India and see what we can find. Ready? Actually, just wait before we start. I should probably mention two things we won't be talking about in this episode. First, there are loads of people in ancient India who are given the name Karata. People in Tibet, a bit after that, people in the mountains of central India were called that, and a bit after that, anyone with vaguely yellowish skin was called that. But we're only interested in this episode in the Karatas of northeast India. Second, we're not going to talk about where these Karata came from. Historians spill an awful lot of ink on this. Some historians say that they came from northern India and were pushed into the northeast by war. Other historians say they came from Southeast Asia. Other historians say they came from Tibet. Understandably, this is a very sensitive, very political issue. What we do know for sure is that the Karata have been in northeast India since well before history began. In fact, we know they've been there even before that prehistorical time that comes down to us in the form of legends and epics. They've been there basically as long as anyone could possibly remember. And anything before that, well, I'm just not too interested in it. Okay, with all the caveats and the procrastinations out of the way, let's get going. Way back when, before history begun, when time forgot, the earth sank beneath the waves. And Vishnu transformed himself into a boar, and he went down into the depths of the ocean, and he lifted the earth up above the waters, saving her. I won't tell the whole story because we already heard it earlier in the series when we went to visit that great Gupta sculpture of Vishnu in his boar form lifting the world up. But now we get to hear the sequel. And there are a few different versions of the sequel floating around the ancient world. It appears in both of the great epics, but mostly I'll be following a Purana that was written down a little bit later than the time of this series. But that Purana was written in northeast India itself. So Vishnu, in his boar form, and the earth, had a child together, and his name was Naraka. Naraka was destined to bring together northeast India and the Ganges Valley. Naraka was given to a childless king over in the Ganga Valley, and he spent his time growing up there, uh, not too far actually where from where, where Patliputra would one day be built. But on his 16th birthday... Naraka's father came to collect him, and they headed off eastwards, towards northeast India, to find a kingdom for the sun to rule. At that time, the whole of northeast India was peopled by the Karatas, and they were ruled by a great king. He himself was a Karata, and therefore he was counted as a Mlecha, a barbarian. But he wasn't a savage. He ruled with splendour and glory and bravery too. So much so that some people called him a heavenly being. When this king heard of Naraka's intentions, he stormed out to meet him. 
and he peppered him with arrows. The barbarian king of the northeast had struck the first blow of the war. But Naraka survived, and he fought back, and he fought fiercely, and pretty soon the Karata commanders were killed, and then the Karata commander-in-chief was killed, and finally the Karata king himself was captured. Naraka beheaded him. The remaining Karata people fled to the hills, or some of them turned around and, and put themselves at the mercy of Naraka. And Naraka granted them mercy. He became their king. And he took the riches of that land, 25,000 elephants, a bundle, a heap of jewellery, colourful costumes that remind you that the silk that we talked about coming from Assam last week. But Naraka was not going to be a good king. And that's because he fell in with bad company. He became friends with a king from a neighbouring land, and the king was a bad sort of man and drove him to do bad sorts of things. And Naraka got up to all sorts of mischief. One time, he interrupted a sage who was on his way to worship the mother goddess. And the sage cursed him. And Naraka's only choice was to go into the wilderness and spend 1,000 years in penance. And he would have thought that that taught him a lesson. But it didn't. Naraka kept on getting up to mischief. He stole the earrings of the mother of the gods. Another time, he was told by Krishna to look after a certain temple, but he neglected his duties. In the end, Naraka became too much trouble for the gods. Krishna came to him and cut him into bits. And, as the text delicately puts it, Naraka retired to heaven. It's a slightly odd start to this kingdom of Kamarupa. Not your unambiguously good founding father that you find in modern states like America. Instead, this deeply flawed man. I suppose in that way, Kamarupa is a little bit like Rome, with a, an ambiguous or even morally bad founder. But Naraka really was the founder of Kamarupa, in the same sense, because for more than a millennia afterwards, every king of every dynasty in that area traced their lineage back to Naraka. Anyway, Naraka had a son, and his son was even more famous than him. His son was called Bhagdatta. Bhagdatta is famous because he was heavily involved in the Mahabharata war, and that brought trouble on Kamarupa, the kingdom in the northeast. Arjuna, one of the heroes of the Mahabharata war, went to go and conquer the area, and Bhagdatta fought back with the Karatas alongside him. For eight long days the battle raged, until finally Bhagdatta gave in. He told Arjuna that he saw him almost as a son, and he couldn't face fighting him any longer. So he gave in and he agreed to go with his Karata escort all the way onto the Ganga plain, carrying heaps of gifts, sandalwood, aloe, more of that later, expensive skins, gold, perfume, rare animals and birds, and 10,000 serving girls, carried out by the Karata from northeast India to give to the kings from the Ganga valley. Now those kings we just talked about, the kings from the legends, they left no trace in northeast India. No cities, no buildings that we found, no inscriptions, not even any sculptures. 
Most historians still think there's a lot of truth in the legends. Maybe, though, we've just got the location wrong, they weren't really from Northeast India. Or maybe they were from Northeast India and they just built all of their great cities out of wood, and the wood's all rotted away since. But by the time of this, the, the third series of the podcast, the Northeast enters history. We start to find buildings, inscriptions, sculptures. And it turns out that, in some ways, the history mirrors the earlier legends. The very first king we met last episode, his name was Pushyavarman. Now, Pushyavarman, the Varman name, indicates that he's part of mainstream Brahminical orthodoxy. It says that he is a Kshatriya, one of the ruling princely caste. And the inscriptions add further to this orthodox Brahminical impression. They say that Pushyavarman was a descendant of those kings of legend, and therefore ultimately also a descendant of Vishnu himself. We heard last episode how Pushyavarman was put in his place by the Gupta emperor. And he really was firmly put in his place. In fact, Pushyavarman named his son and his daughter-in-law after the emperor. His kingdom seems to become not much more than a, a province of the Gupta Empire. But he passed the kingdom on to his son, who passed him on to his son, and so on. And over the generations, the Varman kings managed to, little by little, step by step, win back their independence. These were a line of warrior kings. They were constantly going out to battle, sorting out the hill folk or other kings on their doorsteps, pushing their power around. And in the inscriptions, they give themselves warlike epithets. My favourite in one of the inscriptions, one of the kings is called, Like a lump of alkali to the wound of the kings. Ouch. By the 500s AD, the kings of the northeast are independent and powerful enough to start performing the horse sacrifice. And because the horse sacrifice required so much money and such a big army and such a large territory, that really shows their movers and shakers on the scene on their own. And by now, the Gupta Empire was starting its decline. The Huns had been bashing away at the Gupta Empire, and this is about the time of the third invasion of the Huns. The Gupta Empire is almost out of energy. The kings of the northeast were clearly taking the opportunity to expand their power and independence. The trouble was, it wasn't just the kings of the northeast who were on the rise. All over North India, kings were starting to rise up and try to assert themselves as the Gupta Empire started to crumble. And the kings of the northeast started to be beaten down by kings from elsewhere in northern India. They were invaded once, and twice, the second time by a king from Putliputra itself. This king called himself a Gupta, although he probably had no relation at all to the Guptas. He was just another small dynasty trying to take the place of the old Gupta empire and using their name for his own propaganda purposes. We call him one of the later Guptas for that reason. Anyway, the story goes that the Varman king, the king of northeast India, had just died. And he died fairly young, with only two young sons to inherit. And these young sons were not much more than children. But they took the throne. 
sitting in Potliputra, the king of the later Guptas, spotted an opportunity. He took his army and he went to the northeast. The child kings heard he was coming. They grabbed a few soldiers and raced out as quick as they could, full, no doubt, of dreams of war and victory and valour. But they were just children. They were woefully unprepared. The later Guptas surrounded them with elephants and they were taken captive. Will the child kings escape? Or will the kings of the northeast be under the thumb of the later Guptas just as they were under the thumb of the earlier Guptas? That's a story for the next series. But it's a corker. Anyway, back to our point. As I said, the history mirrors the earlier legends in some ways. In particular, in the relationships between the kings of the northeast and the valleys and the kings of northern India. At first, connected and allied, and then fighting one another. But interestingly, there's a difference in the relationship between the northeast kings and the Karatas. The inscriptions in the historical period for the northeast kings, they don't mention the Karatas at all. Even more than that, the whole of this kingdom of Kamarupa was surrounded by hills. You can see hills from pretty much everywhere, there up on the horizon. And sometimes they're closer, sometimes the hills creep right into the kingdom. The inscriptions, the inscriptions talk about mountains of legend which are far, far away. But these hills that they lived alongside are not mentioned, not even once. As far as the historical record goes, there was this clear and absolute divide between the Karatas up in the hills and the people of the valleys. It was as if, if the Karatas just didn't exist. But on the ground, in the homes and in the lives of normal people, things weren't so stark. Let's take an imaginary walk through ancient northeast India. From a home on the plains, up into the hills, into the land of the Karatas. Actually, let's not start in the capital city. Let's start out of the valley of the great Brahmaputra altogether, some way to the south, still in modern-day Assam, but in the valley of the Bark River. So we're in a house by the side of the river. The house is probably a simple thing, made of wood or brick, we don't have any examples left in the archaeological record, so we can't quite tell you the style. But it would have been surrounded on all sides by fruit trees, and beyond them, the rice paddies would start. And they would stretch out to the very edge of the plot, which is almost always marked by a stream. The whole of the landscape, the whole of ancient Kamarupa, and all of the valleys around it were intensely rural. That's one reason the country-city divide isn't the right way to understand the difference between the valleys and the hills. Just like in other parts of India, the land here was divided up into districts. Now, districts elsewhere in India were named after the town in that district. And the town in the district was a place where the government interacted with the people, the place you went to if you wanted to buy some land and so forth. But here... In northeast India, the districts aren't named after towns at all. They're named after villages. And that's because in the ancient times, there just were no towns in the districts of Kamarupa. 
It was village after village after village after village and pretty much nothing else. There were a few cities, but even the cities were staggeringly rural affairs. On the landward side, away from the river, they were packed with forests inside the city. And on the other side, where the city kind of nestled against the river, the land was still rural. There were herds of wild musk deer passing through, and they were being hunted by leopards. And this rural theme got right into the culture, into the poems, into the very way people in the valleys saw life. So a bit later in the 12th century, a Brahmin left an inscription talking about the beauty of his wife. And he says that she was a beautiful creeper of emerald growing in the jewel mountain of good luck, a lotus stalk in the mud, a creeper sprouting out of a bulb of delight who had eyes like those of a young deer. Or take this inscription around the same time about a queen mother. She had the beauty of a lotus, born, as it were, in that lake which is the very essence of mundane life. It's all positively bucolic. Even the very concept of beauty is bucolic. Actually, bucolic's not my favourite word. When I was a kid, I used to think that bucolic was a disease. I suppose what I mean is that the culture celebrates mundane nature. Not just the stark, tall mountains and the crashing waterfalls. That obviously awesome stuff, that creeps into legends and inscriptions everywhere. But here there's a tradition that delights in the everyday pools and plants and flowers. So, for example, in, in ancient Kamarupa, when they come to describe an army, they don't say it's like this great beast of the earth, like a crocodile. They don't say its drums are like crashing thunder. They say... It's a forest. The people down here in the valley, they're partly Sanskritized, as historians now call it. They've adopted some of that Brahminical orthodoxy, some of the religion of their kings. Now, the kings, of course, claim to be descended from Vishnu himself. Actually, though, the early kings, they worship Shiva, more than Vishnu. They saw Shiva as the senior god and Vishnu as a sort of slightly more junior in some sense. As time goes on, that starts to change a bit. You, you get to have Shiva and Vishnu worshipped side by side as equals, spoken of in the same chant. And as the Gupta Empire draws to a close, in northeast India, Vishnu is coming more and more into his own. But both are there in the landscape. There are temples built to Shiva and maybe a few others built to Vishnu and caves where uh, their followers can dwell and can worship. And with this Brahminical orthodoxy came the Varna system, the caste system. But it didn't come in a very big way. In fact, for the first few hundred years of Northeast history, until well after the time of this series, the only caste that gets mentioned is the Brahmins. No one else bothers to mention their caste at all. What's more, the normal division of labour between the different castes just doesn't seem to have existed. On the usual system in, in the rest of, of India, especially in North India, 
Farming is an occupation that's for the vicious, for the lesser of the three upper castes. Now, over there in, in North India, farming might have been taken up by a Brahmin if they were in a time of need. The rules allowed that. But farming wasn't seen as something you'd boast about if you're a Brahmin. But over in the bucolic northeast, farming seems to have been seen as a noble profession, suitable for all good men. And you'll find Brahmins engaged in it, apparently quite proudly. You also find Brahmins engaged in other work, like chariot drivers, but you find that in other parts of India too at this time. So the Varna system isn't heavily instituted in northeast India at this time. And the Jati system the system of dividing groups by much smaller, more specific hereditary occupations, well, there's no trace of that at all in northeast India at this time. Common people would almost all have been farmers. Now, they would have done other jobs on the side. So when you went to buy your pots, your potter would have been a part-time farmer. When you went to go and cross the river or or get some fish, your boatman would have been a part-time farmer. And nearly everyone else would have been a part-time farmer, short of the king and his bigwigs. Anyway, enough about all of that social stuff. Let's carry on our walk through the paddy fields. Push past those spurts of bamboo. We won't cut them today, because it's not an auspicious day, and you should only cut bamboo on auspicious days. But if it were a different day, we might cut it down and make furniture or use it to cook or use it to store water or or, or liquids or what have you. Push on past there into some trees. Now, many of the trees are really essential to the economy of this land. Lots of them are fruit trees. We talked about them in the last episode. The fruit trees, by the way, they're just for local use. They're not exported outside northeast India. I suppose there wasn't the infrastructure to get fruit somewhere fast enough before it rotted. But it was an important part of the local diet. And there are other trees here too. There are trees for silkworms. We talked about them last episode too. There's this tree here that's called the seven leaves, Saptapana. It's a really big tree, the one with the canopies of leaves and these little spheres of flowers. Actually, I honestly don't know why it's called seven leaves doesn't typically have seven leaves together or anything like that, but it gives really good timber for the frames of buildings. Then there's the Indian ash tree. It's a slightly smaller one with with yellow flowers. Now you you can pick the leaves from there, the young ones, and eat them if you like. Or if you've got a toothache, you can take some of the bark and use that as a remedy. There's a sort of gum in, in, in the trunk that's supposed to be good for you. It's also good for making planks for your buildings. These trees, by the way, they might be wild, they might be planted, it's very hard to say, but they're definitely not in plantations. You won't find all trees of one sort in one space. Nothing so monocultural. Instead, you'll find your trees spotted all over the landscape. So if someone wanted to go around collecting silk, they'd have to go to a tree here and then walk 100 metres to another tree and gather more silk there and walk another 100 metres and so on. There's plenty of flowers around too. There's here a reminder of Putliputra, the city far away to the west. There's plenty of Putli trees here. Over there, you'll see a tiger tree. That's the one with the short, smooth bark. But if you notice, it's been scratched up 
And the scratchings from tigers. You can see the red sap seeping out where the bark's been torn away. Tigers use it to sharpen their claws or mark their territory or something. Actually, the tiger tree is used in shipbuilding too, so it's economically important. And if all this talk of tigers is a little bit more terrifying than you expected from a walk in the woods, go over there and grab a spot of that milkweed. That's the one with the, the flowers that look like little stars. Get the milky sap out of that and give it yourself some. It's said to cure hysteria. Now the hills have been with us the whole way. Little low ridges next to our homestead, sort of buckled up as the earth has been smashed together. And they grow and into the distance, into huge blue-green walls, dense with trees on the horizon. But now we're close to those big hills, and we're going to start climbing into the jungle. The vegetation changes here. The trees are different. And in particular, we find the world-famous Agaru tree. It's a pretty mundane-looking tree. It's an evergreen. It's not too big. The fruit's not too impressive. But it is the wonder of ancient northeast India. And it's used for all sorts of things. The bark is used for books instead of palm leaves. And it also seems to have had medicinal uses. But it's the wood that makes it world famous. Because although the wood's fairly ordinary in normal circumstances, when the trunk comes under attack from an infection, the tree's immune system kicks in. And this dark resin is built up and starts to spread throughout the wood. And it's that dark resin that makes the tree so special. The dark resin smells sublime. It was used in perfumes as far away as Rome. It was made into oil and packed into bamboo tubes which were then sealed off. Or sticks of the wood were, were carved and bundled together almost reverentially in silk. Back in ancient times, the hills of the northeast were speckled all over with these agara trees. And the wood was a major export. And in fact, it's still much in demand in modern times. But there are far fewer agara trees out there. So nowadays, a good stick of wood about the size of your forearm can cost you about 3 lakhs in rupees. That's 50,000 US dollars. And if you just want the powder, well, that floats around 1,000 US dollars for 12 and a half grams. Valuable stuff indeed. But enough about trees. Now we're up here. What are the people like? What are the Karatas living like? Well, if we've read our ancient Sanskrit texts, we'll have this picture in mind. The Karatas as barbarians, wearing nothing but skins, riding elephants. They always seem to be riding elephants in the Sanskrit tales. The Karata people, in fact, are the background to one of the great epics of this age. It's called Kirata Arjuna, Kirata and Arjuna. It expands on a story from the Mahabharata epic. And in this story, Arjuna goes to the forest to become an ascetic, no need to say why now, uh, but to please the god Shiva. And after he's been at it a while, Shiva appears in the form of a Karata, a mountain hunter. And he's about to give Arjuna his reward when a wild boar appears. It's actually a demon, but in the form of a wild boar, and starts to attack. 
Arjuna and Shiva both reach for their bows and they both fire arrows into the boar at the same time. The boar dies. But an argument starts. Arjuna claims that he was the one who shot the boar dead. And the Karata Shiva says that, no, I shot the boar dead. The two start to fight with one another. And the epic tells the tale of that fight. The point for us, though, is that the image of the Karatas people had at that time were this image of wild power. These mysterious people emerging from the hills suddenly, living where great power can be obtained. But that picture that we might have in our minds if we've read the Sanskrit epics, that's an outsider's picture. That epic was written outside of Northeast India altogether, probably somewhere in, in southern India, by someone who may, for all we know, never have met a Northeastern Karata in his entire life. What were the real people like? The people that outsiders called Karatas? Well, we don't know that much in general. Quite a lot of them seem to have been involved in international trade. That's going to be especially true of people a little bit further to the east of where we currently are. Those people would have been trading with Burma, getting gems and bringing them in to India this way. Or maybe even trading on the long lost road to China. Although it's controversial whether the road was even used at this time. As historians have pointed out, the sort of gifts that the Karatas produced, they're so rich that they surely show sign of a flourishing economy. Other Karatas might have been nomadic pastoralists, not merchants. That's especially true of the people in the foothills of the Himalayas up to the north of Kamarupa. Up there, horses were bred, and then they were taken down into the valley to a town on the border of Kamarupa. And there was a huge horse market there, a horse market that sold 1,500 horses a day, according to the ancient account. The valley dwellers called the town something like tax-yielding town, which gives you their angle on it. Other Karatas in other parts of the hills seem to have had a fine tradition of farming, don't seem to have been nomads at all. They may even have farmed grains, cereals. There are, in fact, legends of people who live in the hills about farming. So there's one legend in particular, I'm afraid of not being able to work out exactly how old it is, although historians that I've read seem to think it's very old indeed. And this is the legend of the Hidden Valley. The story starts in a familiar scene. A mountain mount of Karata out hunting. Only this time, he's facing the harsh, mundane realities of hunting. He's been out hunting since dawn, and he's had no luck whatsoever. Now, the day is almost over, and he's about to return home empty-handed. He stops by a stream to wash his face and to have a drink. But as he washes his face, he looks up, and he sees there this majestic boar. Quicker than you can see, he reaches and grabs an arrow, knocks it into his bow, and he flings it at the boar. The arrow implants itself in the boar. But the boar is a strong one. It doesn't die. It spurts out blood, but it squeals and rushes off into the undergrowth. 
The hunter crosses the river and rushes into the undergrowth after it. He can't see the boar anymore, but he can see these blood smears as the boars push through the undergrowth. He follows the blood smears, racing as fast as he can. He chases it for hours. He chases it until the sun goes down. Collapses into a bamboo grove. And he sleeps there for a few hours, and then he rises with the first light, and the chase is back on, following the blood. Surely, he must have been thinking, the boar must be weak and tired too. I injured it. So he chases it on and on, throughout the day. Noon passes, afternoon, evening, the second day of the hunt, almost done. The hunter finally emerges into a clearing. And he sees there a house. And in the house is the boar. But outside the house is this old man, an old woman. And they approach and they say, thank you for bringing our boar back to us. And they invited him in for food and rest. And of course, the hunter says, yes, he's dog tired, right? He's been hunting for two days straight, racing after this damn boar. So he eats some stuff, goes to bed. As soon as his head hits the floor, he's asleep. When he wakes up again, the sun's already in the sky. He goes outside, looking for the old man and the woman. But he can't find them anywhere. All he can see are these two young children playing, a boy and a girl. He sits down and he waits for the old man and the woman, his hosts. He's still tired and his eyes start drooping and he dozes a bit. And when he next opens his eyes... The sun is at the highest point in the sky. He looks around. The children are gone, and the old people aren't back, but there are a young man and woman. He sits down again, and he watches the young man and woman as they go about doing their chores on their farm. The sun passes an hour, and another hour, and he begins to notice that the the young man and woman are no longer young anymore. They're growing older in front of his eyes. By the time of evening, they're an old man and an old woman. The old man and woman he'd met the evening before. The hunter is becoming incredibly startled. He begins to worry that these are spirits or demons. But the old man comes to him and says, don't worry, don't worry. You found the Valley of the Immortals. And there are seven couples living here. There's me and my wife and six other couples. And we don't die ever. And we don't have children. We're young every morning and we grow old every evening. And this valley of the immortals is in fact the source for all life in this area. All the fruit, all the vegetables, all the cereal, all of them originally came from this valley. And so did all of the animals and all of the birds. They give the hunter some seeds and they tell him to go back to his homeland and plant it there. And they promise to send a bird each year. And when he sees the bird, he and his people should plant the seeds. So goes the legend. There's still a festival nowadays up in the hill state of Sikkim in November where they celebrate this. And they bring cereals and vegetables and they dance and they sing. So as we push up into the hills, we may find fields. Perhaps they're fields that are formed by drumming. 
Right? Drumming is this slash and burn technique. Right? The jungle is cut down and burnt, and the crops are then planted in this ashen-rich soil. And you have a year or two of crops in that area, and then the farmers move on to a different patch, and, and that patch is left to grow wild again. We keep pushing on, past the fields. The hill becomes steeper. Keep on going about another six, seven miles, and we come to a site which might tell us more about the worldview of the Karatas of these parts. And here I'm engaging in a bit of speculation, or at least historians are. I'm just following the historians. It's a hill that's still a site of pilgrimage in the modern world. It's called Puban Hill, and it's a hill in the sense of the term that's used in northeast India, which means it's, it's very, very high. It's more than 700 metres high. In England, they'd call it a mountain. On the way up, there's a cave. And it's a curious sort of cave. In the cave, there's this passage. Not really a passage, more of a nook. It's 18 inches by 9 inches. Right? There's barely enough to drag yourself through on your chest. And it's said that if you manage to drag yourself through, you'll find this great network of carved caves. There's an old official report about it. And it says that once you're through the 10-foot section of the passage, it opens out into a great assembly hall, 80 foot long, 30 foot wide, 20 foot high. And at the far end of the great assembly hall is another passage that takes you downwards another 400 foot. And then you find a second assembly room of the same size. And then another passage which carries you on downwards to a third assembly hall, deep within the hill, far from any light. Imagine the great mass of rock above you at this point. Then there's another passage down. This one is blocked by a big stone with sharp teeth. Now, if you're brave enough in the dark to try and squeeze your way through without being cut up, you can carry on down the corridor to the next hall. At the end of that hall, there's a corridor that starts to slope upwards. Boulders pushing at you from the walls. And the passage is blocked here by a large triangle of stone. There are gaps around it, but gaps that are so narrow, no one's dared to push past it. And it's said that if you can pass all the way through the tunnels, if you've got enough courage to face all of its trials and get through to the other side, then you gain a great boon. Weird tale. I mean, I'm a little bit sceptical. This would make the cave bigger than any cave I've ever heard of that's been man-made. But that's a mystery for further exploration. Let's carry on up to the top of the hill. Up there, you'll find a pool you can wash yourself clean in. And once you're kind of clean and pure, you can go and approach the shrines almost on the very summit. And nowadays, they're occupied by ancient stone statues. Statues that were strewn around the whole entire hill, although most of the statues are now missing or broken. And these statues seem to be really quite ancient. But they're absolutely nothing like the statues we found down on the plains in the last episode. Those plain statues were clearly influenced by the Gupta work. They had Gupta eye for beauty. These statues up on the hill, in the land of the Karatas, they're from an entirely unrelated tradition. They're of people, presumably gods. But they look nothing like uh, a shiver or a poverty from a Gupta statue. They look more like 
tribal people, more like the people of the hills. Nowadays, one of the statues works as Shiva. And the ancient Karatas, if they carved them, might have seen them as Shiva too, because it's said that the ancient Karatas worshipped Shiva. But it's also said that when they worshipped Shiva, they worshipped him in a very unusual way. They worshipped him by eating meat. They worshipped him by drinking wine and, and having dalliance. But the Karatas also seem to have worshipped the mother goddess. We have very ancient sources indicating this was the, the primary goddess, the primary deity in the area. Actually, that's true for a lot of the mountain peoples of India. Some historians think that mother goddess worship and Shiva worship merged and blended together, and that the mother goddess became Durga, the wife of Shiva in her most fearful aspect. Some of those ideas may still be about today, in modern Darjeeling, towards the edge of northeast India, and in modern Nepal, just outside. By the way, in more recent times, uh, uh, another spiritual movement started at this very religious site. Uh, it started, and its idea is it looks back to the old way of worship. It focused exclusively on one supreme god, and perhaps like the worship of old, involved animal sacrifice and meat eating. All this is a bit vague. We only get the very dimmest picture of what life was like as a Karata in ancient northeast India. But we at least see that there's some form of Sanskritization that's going on, just as there was for the people in the valley. As they were adopting this worship of Shiva and Vishnu, something similar was going on up in the hills too. It wasn't a complete divide. It wasn't a border through which no ideas and no people passed. And the best illustration of the Sanskritization of the Karatas comes from an ancient tale the story goes that the mother goddess held humans as the best of all of her creations. But when she looked at the earth, she saw that humans were ruining the earth with all of their greed. All of them were corrupt, except for one couple. A virtuous couple who were trying to persuade everyone else to turn back to the path of virtue. So the mother goddess decided to do something. She sent a messenger to them in the form of a small fish. The small fish swam down the stream towards where the virtuous husband and wife lived. The virtuous husband woke up early that day and he went to the stream to wash himself. And as he was washing himself, he heard a fish cry out, Help, help, please move me to the pond. A big fish is chasing me and it wants to eat me up. The virtuous man was... A virtuous man, so he did as the fish asked, and then he forgot about it, as, as you do when fish talk to you. Some days later, the virtuous man was passing the pond, and he heard a fishy voice again. Help, uh, please move me to the river. I've become too big for this pond. He went over to the pond, and he looked in, and sure enough, the fish was there, but much bigger than before. Too big for the pond. He heaved it out of the pond, and he splashed it back into the river, and then he forgot about it again. A few days later, he heard a voice from the river. Uh, excuse me, um, could, you, could you help move me to the sea? The virtuous man went to the river and he saw the fish had grown huge, far too big for the river. So he pulled it out and he lugged it, this heavy thing, to the sea. 
And when the fish splashed in the sea, it turned and it said to the virtuous man, I'm going to save you and your wife from destruction. There's a great flood that's coming. A flood that's going to kill all of humanity, except for you and your wife. I'll tell you what to do. Build a huge boat and build it big enough so that it can have compartments for the animals and the birds. And then you and your wife get into it and then I'll turn up. The virtuous man and the virtuous woman obeyed him. They built this huge big boat, big big enough for compartments for the animals and birds. And they got the animals on board and the birds on board and they got themselves inside and they pulled the door shut. Then the skies drew dark. The rains began. The water level started to rise. It got higher and higher, and the boat was about to be swept away when the great fish appeared. A humongous thing. The virtuous woman tied the ship to the fish, and the fish steered the ship straight through the storm. It rained for days and days. Until one day, the rain stopped. The sun came out, and all was silent. Slowly, bit by bit, the water started to seep down. Hills started to show above the waters. The boat grounded on one, and the fish told them to get out and to start a new world of peace and virtue. Now that myth is, of course, the flood myth, a myth you find all over the place. Uh, First, I think, in the Babylonian texts. I'm not an expert on the flood myth. You also find it, though, in the Brahminical texts, about 700 BC or so, it's there. Not with the same twists. Clearly, it's a little bit different in northeast India. But it seems to be a sign that Brahminical ideas are starting to deeply influence Karata culture, all the way down to the very foundation myths. Other historians suggest it's the other way round that it's the Karata culture which brought the flood myth to the Brahminical orthodoxy. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week I thought we would read from the Karata Junior, that epic we talked about earlier in this episode. This was an epic that was written sometime pretty soon after the great works of Kalidasa. It was written by a chap called Mahavari, and his writing is quite different to the writing of Kalidasa. We've heard Kalidasa before. Kalidasa is exquisitely elegant. It's like a gentle breeze, bouncing from one delight to the other. But Mahavari, he lays his words thick with meaning. As one medieval commentator put it, the epic is like a coconut. You need to crack it open with violent force of your intellect before you can get at the juicy rasa, the milk inside. To give you a sense of just how dense this epic is, there's an entire half of a canto that's devoted entirely to complex wordplay. Words arranged in patterns. It's more than just, say, palindromes or limericks. It's not just palindromes are those uh, lines that read the same backwards and forwards. Here you've got multi-directional palindromes. 
whole paragraphs where each line reads the same backwards and forwards, but also you can read top to bottom columns of the paragraph, and they also read the same from top to bottom and bottom to top. This is really impressive. I spent quite a long time trying to come up with a, a simple English example. I couldn't do it, even only using four four-letter words. But here, in this epic, you have these whole paragraphs full of poetical meaning, woven into a story making sense. Incredible stuff. Anyway, the translation we're reading from isn't great, I'm afraid. I've run out of time to translate it myself. The passage we're reading from is a bit where Shiva's taking the form of a karata and is about to appear before Arjuna. It goes like this. Thus speaking to the holy saints, a forester in guise he went. His ample chest bedewed with toil, with many a pearl and sandal paint. Flowering tendrils rudely tied his clustering manly locks he wore, and a bright peacock's painted feather o'er his bloodshot eyes he bore. A mighty bow with arrows keen he carried in his brawny hand, like a rain cloud dark he looked, the leader of a forest band. And all his hosts in various guise, obedient to their master's word, assembled like a hunting troop with bow and arrow, lance and sword. They parceled out the mountain wood, obedient to their leader's will, shaking the earth with mighty sound. Forward marched the hunters still. Screams and sounds of birds and beasts filled far and near the forest land, as if the woods and mountains quaked in terror of that hunter band. And the flying beasts and birds forgot a while their mutual strife. A common danger made them comrades, a common fear for their life. The timid chump fain would fly, bewildered by the hunter's yell. But in the jungles, wild and thick, was caught a white and bushy tail. The mighty lion, the forest king, owned in his heart no dastard fear. He calmly viewed the hunter's pass, through echoing woods in gorges dear. The fish leap out from the jungle lake. The wild beast on its margin crowd, and tall trees by the tuskers broken with their juice its waters cloud. Buffaloes, tearing through the forest, broke in twain the tangled trees, and many a wild flower tossed and shaken with their fragrance filled the breeze. Wild beasts, splashing through the water, felled the plantains, crushed the grain, dashed aside the water lily like a summer storm in rain. Sweeping thus through forest lands, at length the hunters came and stood, where grazed in peace the gentle deer, nor dreaded harm in Arjun's wood. And shiver marked, black as a cloud, a wild boar in the covert rise. Tearing the earth with angry tusks, it flew, a demon in disguise. Leaving his hosts behind the forest lake, concealed by creepers and by jungle brake, the lord of hosts, Resistless in force, track the mighty wild boar in its course. And that's it for this week. Thanks a lot for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you've been enjoying the podcasts. If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snail City Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. You can get to the website by following the link in the description. Next week, 
we should be having a look at Southeast Asia and the Indian influence on it. Until then, have a great week. Take care.